Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today I'm speaking with Hannah Oliver-Depp, who owns and operates loyalty bookstores in D.C. and in the surrounding metro area. Some of you might remember Hannah from when she was a guest during our Band Book Week series. And today she's back to talk about what it's like running her very own intersectional, mission-driven feminist bookstore. Hannah is a career bookseller serving on the boards of Bookshop.org and the New Atlantic Independent Booksellers Association. Today, we talk about Hannah's road to bookselling, how readers can support their local indies aside from buying books, and we hear how Hannah and her team of booksellers decide what to stock on their shelves. Hana will return for our June book club discussion of Oreo by Fran Ross, which we will discuss on Wednesday, June 28th. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. Do you know what is very cool? The Stacks Pack. That's the exclusive community for lovers of The Stacks over on Patreon. For as little as $5 a month, you get to join our virtual book club and Discord chats and link up with like-minded book lovers and be a part of the best bookish community in town. The Stacks Pack also gets bonus episodes and to weigh in on Stacks decisions like our book club picks, plus discounts on merch, and a lot more. Again, all of that is for just $5 a month. Plus, joining the Stacks Pack makes it possible for me to keep the Stacks up and running as an independent podcaster. So if you want more of the show and to help me make it every single week, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks to join. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Stacks. And now it's time for my conversation with Hannah Oliver Depp. All right, everybody, I'm so excited. You all have been begging me to have this person back on the show. We finally are making it happen. I am joined again by Hannah Oliver Depp, who is the owner and founder of loyalty bookstores in Washington, D.C. and the Washington, D.C. metro area. (laughs) Hannah, welcome back. Hi, I am so excited to be back. I um, love this show and I am deeply amused that people wanted me back um, to do something other than, although I will always rant about book banning. Well, we're going to talk about book banning today a little bit because I kind of want to do like, where are we now since we since we that's the last time people heard from you. But before we do that, let's start where we sort of 
always like to start, which is like, tell us a little bit about yourself, because I feel like on the book banning episode, we didn't like get a lot of backstory on you. That is true. Um, I where did I come from? I was uh, rose <laughs> out of the ocean on a seashell. Uh, <laughs> they cracked open Zeus's head and there I was. No, I um was an academic um, studying medieval modernism, which is uses of medievalisms in the interwar period specifically is what I was looking at. Very British, very good white guy, um, rooted in a love of dragons and kind of looking at how the other was treated in times of stress. And yeah, I adored that, um, was really struggling with where academia was and still is and like the tension between where funding is coming from, how on earth you can balance like being there for your students and teaching and a love of teaching and community and, you know, bringing forth young minds and and pushing forth research and also just like the pressure to justify the existence of any liberal arts department and or (laughs) subject um, as American education becomes increasingly more, you know, driven by, by, um, you know, funding and, and competition. So I was just really sort of struggling with that and feeling additionally that I didn't belong because of being, you know, more working class as well as, of course, more um, a person of color. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I was definitely, I I had so many wonderful mentors and I, I had found my people, but it was never celebrated that I had been, you know, working in retail since I was a teenager, that I had a theater background, that I, you know, was a visual thinker that um that my experiences like working with the public uh made me a better teacher that my ability to understand living paycheck to paycheck because that's what i was doing made me a better teacher not a worse teacher except for a fact that financial stress makes us all worse so i just like felt like that there was just so much tension between you know what i loved to do which was you know education and the fact that like my whole self was not welcomed in the classroom. I took a break between my MA and my PhD program and I um, went to work uh, at Politics and Prose, which is a bookstore in Washington, D.C. that I had like grown up going to and mm-hmm. definitely formed a lot of like my own, you know, mind as a child and uh, has like a well-deserved, incredibly well-reputed children's section. And then, you know, graduating to the top floor, which had the grown-up books and, <laughs> and going to author events and things like that. And I realized that a lot of what I was looking for in independent book selling, like, it was there. Like I was able to bring all of my intellectualism as well as my whole body and self into that room. And I was able to like actually connect with customers. I was able to do what had been done for me, which was like guide people at all sorts of stages of their life, wherever they were, whether it was a heartbreak, whether it was a loss, whether it was boredom, Mm -hmm. whether it was um, not seeing themselves um, just different phases and stages of life or the constant human condition and help them find the right book. And I saw the impact that a bookstore that cared could have on a community and could have on the publishing industry, which is a huge mm. beast unto itself. And bookstores and publishing have this relationship. They love and hate each other as they love and hate themselves. No, there, there actually isn't any hate, but there is, again, that tension because there's not a lot of money in books and there's not a lot of, um, you know, space for error. 
<laughs> right, right. But bookstores are incredibly good at doing introducing books to people, especially if they've never heard of them before. So your debut right. authors, your underrepresented authors, we are very good at getting those into people's hands. So publishers really do value that relationship. And right. so you're able to say, we need way, way, way more middle grade chapter books with kids of color who are going on mystery adventures or fantasy adventures, mm. or, you know, we really don't have enough essay collections by people from this background or whatever. Like we're able to have these conversations directly with publishers in a way that is maybe outsized of necessarily like my billing with that publisher, because they care about the opinions that booksellers have because we're seeing what's happening direct face to face with customers. And we are reading way in advance all across all genres. Right. And that was just stunning to me because as someone who, you know, was studying as previously stated medieval literature, the idea of having like, you know, talking to a publisher and then in three to five years, seeing some of those ideas like come out while also watching a person in your community's mind evolve because of the book right. conversations you are all having. Like, and then on top of that all, like there is still the things that I was good at, like opening and closing a store and right. managing the operations that were going around me. And I was like, oh my God, my whole self is here. Except <laughs> I was, I want to be clear, very embraced by the store to be my whole self. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of tension because, um, you know, the store that I first became a full-time bookseller in is a legendary store, is a store that cares a lot, but it is in one of the most affluent nation, like neighborhoods in this country. And right. it's extremely white. And right. it was exhausting. Mm. I'm adopted. I grew up in white community. I was a transracial adoptee. I am very, very good at navigating this. Um, right. And what community did I want to spend all of my energy and my time serving? Was it a community that was never going to be not served? Right. Or right, was it a community right. that without dedication and passion was going to continually be overlooked? Mm. And so a few years into my career as a bookseller, I just um, not only wanted to be able to move further in my career, because this is an issue we have with bookselling, again, really small margins, really, you know, really tiny businesses by and large. There's not always room to like move up in a company or mm -hmm. to grow your skill set past a certain point. Um, and I was, I think, part of like a wave of dedicated, caring booksellers who really wanted to see the industry grow and change, but maybe we weren't in the right places to do that. Mm. I, I uh, did what many people do. Um, I, I looked for a wonderful mentor um, to, to help me grow. Um, went and worked at another bookstore, Word Bookstores, in, um, which is in Jersey City and in Brooklyn. Um, mm. And that store had opened, it was less than 10 years old at that point. And just like, I, I was like, you know, I'm at this incredible legendary bookstore, but there's a lot of great lessons about how to like grow, evolve and adapt, but there weren't any of like, how start bookstore. <laughs> yeah, totally. Which is a totally different task. And so, you know, I, I worked there for three years and I learned a ton continue to grow my connections in the book industry. But the idea was always to come home to Washington, D.C. Um, and that's where you grew up? I grew up a little bit all over the place. I'm actually, okay. I, I think the place we lived the longest um, was in Elkton, Maryland, which is not a place that's famous for anything other than being near other things. Uh, right. <laughs> north of Baltimore. Um, 
But uh, I spent uh, most of my summers here in D.C. with my aunt. She's the one who would take me to politics and prose. Um, and when and I, as soon as I, whenever I had the choice of where to live, this is where I came home. And this is like my my mental home. Yeah, but no, I did not like grow up here. I think it's really important. Because like if you like, I was, you know, at, at D.C. Public School X, right? you know, like that's a real right. strong core thing right, that I respect. Right, right, right. <laughs> I respect that. I live in LA. So like being from LA is very, I think, similar. Uh-huh. It's like also being from New York City. Like Exactly. There like, is a, I'm like, this is my home, but I am not from here. I'm not from here. Yeah. yeah. It means something culturally to be from some of these like major American cities because they're so transient. Yeah. And I grew up around here. I have family here. I, you know, I, I would go, I had a very unusual, very hippie upbringing and I would go stay with family members for like long stretches of time. I see. And so I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of me that was deeply influenced from a very young age by this place, but you know, was not my, was not my mailing address. Um, got it until my twenties. Yeah. And then, but uh, yeah, spent more time here than anywhere else and will always be here. Um, okay, wait, before we go on to the beginning of loyalty, I have some follow up questions. Oh, my God. I've just said. been talking for so long. I'm so well, sorry. I that know. was the longest version I think I've ever <laughs> like, Tracy, what did you do to me? That was like everything I've ever done. And like, well, I well, I wanted so to long. know. Oh, my God. I asked. But it's just funny because you were answering a lot of the questions I had written down for you. So I was like, well, I'm not going to stop her because she's sort of just like going through my list. Oh anyways. My but I do. I do have a follow up question about. You, your background in theater. Yeah. I didn't know you had a background in theater. Oh, come on. Uh, yes, I'm a theater kid, ma'am. Um, I was a theater major. We've never oh talked God. about this. Yes, yeah. samesies. That was my, oh. I, I was like the the queen of liberal arts. I was like, I've got English. I've got theater. I've got women's studies. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I um, love it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you. total total theater kid. Um, my favorite things are costume design and set dressing. Okay. I was like definitely a tech kid, but I, I was on stage a lot. I, I love, um, you know, brown kid on stage. I was obviously the best friend a significant amount of time. Of everyone. Mm-hmm. 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 That's mm-hmm. iconic. Mm-hmm. I, I can relate. I can relate. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also played a lot of like evil wives. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which like, is like I delicious was... and fun. But you're also like, I I know why you picked me for this role. Yes. I, I understand why I'm the stepmother. It's yeah. fine. I love it here. But also like, I see you. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. And then you were mentioning how the bookseller relationship with publishers and like getting to give them feedback and stuff. Mm -hmm. You were experiencing that when you were at Politics and Prose before you ever even opened loyalty. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, um, you know, the the relationship is like complicated and, uh, you know, how, how it works is different in each store, but we were really nurtured to, um, you know, read, um, ahead, uh, you know, take, take as many, you know, advanced copies home and read them as we could to write reviews. And, um, you know, if you showed passion, that passion was like returned in tenfold by people who had been in the industry longer. And so if a sales rep for a publisher saw that I was like really engaged, they chatted me up and they talked to me and they're like, what are you reading? What are you liking? What are you seeing as somebody who's on the sales floor every day? What's moving? What's not? Um, And then they have their, you know, weekly meeting with their superiors and they pass on what they, you know, talk to the booksellers that week about during their sales calls. Does that then like those conversations with the sales department, does that then somehow end up with editorial? Like, For sure. Do you know how that happens? Yeah. The- yeah. I mean, again, it's probably different with every publisher, but sure. I know that. And, and like, you know, the bigger the publisher too, it's like, you know, 
a smaller press, you just right. talk to people directly <laughs> versus like something at a Penguin Random House level where they own more than half of the various presses in the country. And it's like getting up, 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 up. But even so, there still are, you know, there's um, just like any company, you are getting feedback from people from all various different departments. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you do your, you know, seasonal kind of conferences where you are like talking about direction and you're talking about trends and you're talking about, and, you know, I know for facts that like blurbs booksellers have written end up in those rooms that like, Hey, you know, I had a a conversation with, you know, one of our biggest bookstores on the East coast and they were saying they're seeing this. And then a rep from, you know, is like, Oh, well, I'm seeing this, you know, and they represent a different part of the country. Right. Cause it's usually split up geographically. So people can actually visit the stores they represent. So, you know, it's like, you know, are they going to take something that they heard from, say, uh, a a loyalty or a mahogany at the same level that they're going to take what the Amazon sales rep says? Depends, depends. But but it's in the mix. It's in the conversation, right? Like my billing is nothing compared to Amazon's billing. (laughs) It's nothing compared to larger bookstores billing. But I am like getting information that they can't really get anywhere else. Like no amount of surveys or algorithm clicks are going to be the same as what I see every day. And at Amazon, there is no real true introduction to titles Mm -hmm. like you might have like if you're interested in this you might like this but none of it is like organic or specific to a reader yeah so you have a sense of like when people come into the bookstore and they're saying like I'm looking for xyz Mm -hmm. you're able to like translate that very literally whereas Amazon would have to do that through like some sort of algorithms of what people are searching for which is not always helpful. Right. It's not always accurate. Yeah. I always look, I talk about it like it's Sherlock Holmes. Like I will look at you. It sounds a little predatorial almost, but like I will look <laughs> at you and be like, okay, this is like what you're wearing. This is how your posture is. Um, right. This is where you seem comfortable or uncomfortable. And like my job is to like coax you into like telling me the truth because people have a lot of preconceived notions too sometimes when they walk in a store that they need to like appear a certain way or act a certain way so I want to make them comfortable if they feel like that or if they just like have not had the opportunity because they have not had a bookstore in their community before which is very common and and, and I'm like well what shows do you like because they're like the last you know the last book I read was like you know in high school and I hated it, but I really want to read more. And I'm like, that's way fine. Or they're like, I've only ever read X, you know, only ever read nonfiction. And I think that's weird. Maybe I should read fiction, (laughs) you know? So getting people to a place where they'll like actually talk to you because often what they think they're coming in for might not be what they actually want or need. Right. I got, I got to be a bookseller for a day at my local bookstore reparations club on Bookstore day. I was giving like book recommendations for a few hours and it was the most fun. It's intoxicating. It's so great. I mean, I was like literally running all over the store, like pulling things off the shelf, being like, okay, they don't have this in stock, but let's go ahead and order it because it's exactly what you want or like what, I mean, it's just, it's so much fun if you love books to get to talk about books. And it is sort of like this mystery and trying to like excite someone about a book even though they have no clue what you're talking about because they haven't read it, but you don't want to tell them anything, but you right. also want to tell them every Like, it's like the whole right. thing. Um, okay. Wait, I want to go back to loyalty's origin stories. Mm-hmm. So you go to Jersey and Brooklyn, you kind of do like an apprenticeship. How do I do this? You decide, okay, I'm coming back to DC. I'm opening this 
bookstore. And then how long did that take to actually like get back to DC to do it? And also, how did you come up with the name? Oh, great question. It was a long time. And also it happened really fast. So um, we had a bookstore here on Upshur Street in the Petworth neighborhood of DC called Upshur Street Books. Um, and they were sort of like heading towards closing. But the the owner was a restaurateur and he really just like thought the neighborhood needed a bookstore, which it absolutely does. And so he'd like opened one, but it was like it not his, you know, full focus. He really cared about it. He thought the neighborhood needed a bookstore. So he was looking for someone to kind of take it on, but it was not really you know, necessarily my mission, it was a lovely spot, um, but it was a little bit different than what I wanted to do, you know, focusing entirely, uh, you know, on, on diverse literature, on making sure that the, um, you know, community that had made Petworth everything it was as it got further gentrified was like the main focus of the store and, you know, could introduce the folks moving newly into the store into like what this neighborhood, the best parts of this neighborhood, which are the people that made it. Um, he was lovely to work with. We sort of did kind of like a work to own program and I needed to kind of like raise funds to do any of that because I don't know if you know, but uh, working in major cities as an independent bookseller does not allow you to save money. Um, So we did a pop-up and I pulled every, (laughs) every favor and connection that I had in the book industry. Um, I, sort of like lovingly and jokingly say like all of my friends are operations managers, but it's like absolutely true. Like every single one of us <laughs> is like an earth sign and like an ENT or INTJ, like whatever your, um, <laughs> like whatever your personality type preference rubrics is, we are all exactly that person. Um, and so okay. I was like, I was like, okay, you are going to do this for me and you are going to do this for me. And I was like oh marshalling God. every favor ever um, and it was really just beautiful. Like community came together to help make this thing happen. And so we did a pop-up in downtown Silver Spring, which I did live in as a kid, uh, which is nearby. It's just like just outside of DC. And it's um, it's always like in the top five, like most diverse cities in America. It's a huge yeah. immigrant city. It's an incredible place. They also hadn't had a bookstore in years. And I was like, this is unacceptable. So my goal was always to do multiple bookstores with like a linked mission. And so I knew Silver Spring was looking for a bookstore. I wanted to keep a bookstore in Petworth. I was like, we're going to do pop-ups and we're just going to like see what happens. We were able to keep a bookstore on Upshur Street and use money from that we'd made during the pop-up to um, kind of raise awareness about the brand and to um, do like an opening order for the the Upshur Street location. And uh, we opened Loyalty on Upshur Street in Petworth uh, in D.C. in um, February of 2019 and stayed in various public forums, whether that was at farmer's markets or inside coffee shops in Silver Spring over the next year as well, and then opened in February in 2020 in Silver Spring. Um, so two locations right now, um, as well as just like, you know, we kind of, we do events all over the city um, and we're working on gathering funding and staffing and things for a bookmobile as well. Um, so we can get even further places, although that, that's definitely some some months off because we are very uh, tasked to the hilt now. <laughs> yeah. But it How is, did you come with the name? But the name, yeah. So the idea is that Bookstores are definitely a two-way street between the community and the booksellers. Loyalty is like a really central idea just for like my own personal guiding light. Um, mm-hmm. I I think that, you know, when you let a thing or make a commitment to a thing or let someone in your life that you 
you know, it, it's, it's so important what you choose to spend your time on and who you choose to spend your time with. Mm-hmm. And for me, if you put a book story in your community, you're saying, I'm here for you. I'm committed to you. And the way that it works is that the community has to be committed to you too. It, it is a relationship that you are forming. Um, it's what makes book selling such a difficult business because it's not a business that makes a ton of money, but it's a business that is dependent upon relationships. And so, you know, that relationship might be someone passing through, or it might be somebody who grows up coming to your bookstore. Yeah. Um, And, you know, both are important. So I just wanted a name that really focused on that. Um, It was, you know, fairly unique and I really loved it. I also sort of joke that I am like my reading taste and my aesthetics are like the love child between like Kendrick Lamar and C.S. Lewis. (laughs) So I was not expecting that combination, but I love it here. That is, that is me. Um, especially, you know, specifically that album. So yeah, the song loyalty, I probably like blasted that more so than anything. Uh, I love that that album. Yeah. It's so good. And, um, you know, uh, problematic faves. It's, it's really, you know, what are you going to do? Um, and yeah, yeah, I grew up reading, you know, uh, like many a baby medievalist, I grew up reading, you know, any kind of fantasy I could get my hands on, but the kind of like, um, idea of friendship and of like love in a community, that's really like, uh, an important part of, of C.S. Lewis's work. Um, so I, I just was like, oh, this is like what implanted in me and kind of guides my morals. And, when I'm really, really, really tired or overwhelmed <laughs> while running a small business, it helps to have the word loyalty emblazed on the wall. I love that. I love that so much. Okay. You talked about how booksellers can influence publishing. And I obviously have an audience of a lot of readers. Mm-hmm. And I think the conversation about Amazon and then like a Barnes and Noble or a Target and then independent bookstores and how to support and all of these things. I want to know what are the things that readers can do that are the most impactful for an independent bookstore aside from going to the bookstore? Like, are there other things people can be doing to support the work of independent bookstores that maybe they don't think of or like maybe are easier than they think or or Mm -hmm. more difficult than buying books or like Aside from just like going to the store and buying a book, what else matters for readers to do to support your work and their local indies? Yeah, that, thank you for that question. Um, On the one hand, it is like straightforward capitalism. Like if you want, you know, what there was an indie campaign that the American Book Association did a while, like buy buy it here, keep us here. Like it's a very, like buy the books, buy the stickers, buy the cards, um, buy a membership if that's a thing. Um, That really is like the model. However, we all know there's like so much to overcome in this capitalistic hellscape that like, you know, and, and also we know that like, not everyone can afford a, a $30 hardcover every week, right? Like right, it is, right. it is, it can be complicated. So uh, one of the hugest things is sharing that your bookstore exists. I've mm. worked at bookstores that are 30 year old, years old and hugely famous. And like people would walk in and be like, how long has this been here? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, like the general vibe is that like bookstores are dying. They're not actually, they're growing. Independent bookstores are opening up more and more all the time. But it's still like small business in America is a huge uphill battle. Um, and there's no margins in book selling. So 
having you tell your friends who come into town to visit your cousin, your mom, tell everybody that, that there is a bookstore in your neighborhood. Or if there is not what bookstore you like that ships. Cause pretty much everybody ships everywhere and has a website now. Like this is not like the early nineties when like bookstores were like, mm, you can call me maybe. <laughs> like, right. This, this right, is very right. much so, like they are online. They are shipping um, internationally or at least throughout the U S um, it is so helpful. You absolutely share on social media. That's a really, really big deal. We had like a, one of my favorite local bookstagrammers, Lupita Reads, who's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Definitely follow Lupita. Great book recommendations. Like today shared like about an event and was like, DC, who's coming to this event? Because like they themselves were going like a normal person. And they're yeah. like, if anyone wants to come, like meet me there, you know, that was not something we asked her to do. But I right. know that like the algorithm is going to like that and is going to help more people find out about that event and therefore our bookstore. Um, right. That kind of stuff is huge. Sharing, if you like, like the book stack that I put on social, be like, oh my God, look at what my bookstore put on social. It's really simple. If you don't have money, word of mouth and social media are so incredibly huge because mm. people need to hear things repeatedly before they remember they exist. Yes. And just like the vague idea that somewhere there's a local bookstore that would be nice to support or is picturesque or would have unique recommendations is kind of where I think a lot of readers' heads are. And that's totally understandable. But like, how do we get that to actually when it is time for you to buy that book? Mm-hmm. Um, and you are in the neighborhood or you don't, you know, you, you know, it's not the book that your kid forgot to tell you they needed for their homework in the next two hours. Right. Like, oh, like, is, is it possible that you can get it there? Um, so I, I do think it's like so much of it is word of mouth. I think the other side of this is if you are someone who is engaged in what's going on locally, how does your local government treat small business? Mm. Um, it, like what, what are, how, how, what are landlords allowed to get away with? Mm-hmm. What are, are the, are the taxes that your small businesses pay so much worse than what a Walmart or a Target pays when they move into your community? What happens when a small business needs help because they got a window broken or there was a flood? Mm-hmm. Um, are there grants around, you know, what, how does your local, how do your local politicians treat small businesses? Is it just a photo op or are they actually making it possible for your downtowns and your neighborhoods to be unique and special and places that you're happy to live in? What are the bike lane laws? What, you know, what's happening with trash pickup? Like these are like really large, big questions, but those are actually more often than not the things that kill a business Hmm. (laughs) when there is no margins. (laughs) Right. When they, right. like little things like that, um, they really pile up and they can be really hard. And, um, you know, DC is, you know, always writing this, uh, you know, kind of courting development and gentrification and bigger companies. Um, and also, like, there are a lot of programs here for small business. We're pretty lucky. It's really exhausting, you know. And one of the things I'm trying to do better this year is to take advantage of them. And if there are community members who've been like, if you ever need help with X, Y, or Z, let me know. Like trying to actually follow up on that because it is hard, you know, for everyone to do more than just like getting through the day, right? Right, right, right. So if you don't have like a, a lot of margin in your product, your their profit, you know, isn't huge. 
and you have, you know, knock on wood, God forbid, et cetera, something happened to your building or, you know, right. a staff members are sick or, or anything, you know, all that stuff we saw with COVID that actually hasn't gone away at all, right. especially right. not for small businesses. So the fact that it's both a book place and a small business is really like a double whammy of difficulty right. for, for any bookstores. Yeah. Um, okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay. So I didn't prep you for this, but we do an Ask the Stack segment where someone writes in for a book recommendation. Oh my God. I have, I've the given pressure. you, I think the, the hardest, this is the hardest one I've ever had, but I'm hoping that you know, because you're so well read. I had to outsource my answers to Twitter because I could not think of an answer. Oh my God. So this is where also I have to tell you, and everyone who's ever like worked with me or been handled by me knows this. I am so bad at author names. 
It's okay. We'll I'll so, link to that in the show notes. I'll say, so I'll let's find link the to authors. it, or you might yes. hear me clickety clack, but only because I'm like making sure I'm having the That's name okay. right. We will take care of that. Don't worry. Um, okay, so this comes from Tanya, and they okay. say I inherited a bunch of Eric Siegel books from my grandmother and actually enjoy them. Mm. Are there more modern books like that? Books about ambitious guys living their lives, climbing corporate ladders, falling in love, and fucking up their marriages, all while navigating their unresolved daddy issues. Siegel probably wrote for women, but his books feel like the male equivalent of chiclet. Do you know of anyone writing something similar these days? Brian Washington, who I also love, writes about young black men in a similar way. Bros just living and fucking up their lives. But I love the middle upper class 30s and 40s problems of Siegel's characters as well. Any all bro lit recommendations would be appreciated. So I can <laughs> I go first if you, you want to the bro lit question. Yes, absolutely. But I do have some ideas. Oh, you do already? Okay. Well, then you go first because I really struggled and I outsourced to people. And also, I don't even know some of the books that I'm getting ready to say. And I will link to the Twitter thread where these answers are. So oh, that yeah. I want to read more. this Twitter thread. Too. Yeah. There were some good options. But okay. What is popping out to you? What do you, what came to you? Um, well, this is a like a little bit ch- uh, like cheating, but like Brandon Taylor writes about like the... Mm-hmm overeducated lost sad souls <laughs> yes totally and That's like a good somewhat one. from an outsider perspective which like gives mm-hmm. you a way in but mm-hmm. they are you know it's like dinner parties where the conversation is like you both like want to punch everybody but also you're mm-hmm. like oh my god I've been at this table or um but yeah it is that it's that age group it's that like we are career and we are moving up and it's often either academia or um, you know, related to that. So I definitely think um, Brandon Taylor would be up. And that's also, that's like, he's done short stories and novel as well. Uh, New York, My Village was the first thing that sprang to mind, which is by, I actually don't know how to say his first name, but I think it's U.M. Akpayam. And it is funny and like is a person like doing well in their career as an author, actually. It's a little bit off the wall. Um, he's like doing well. He's out on his book tour. He's like succeeding, but he is fucking up all over the place. (laughs) Then he sees, um, starts seeing like a kid and he doesn't know if the kid is real or not. Um, and yeah, it's, you're like very much so inside his brain, but you're also watching him like just navigate life, like as success, being like a successfully public career person while also not being a successfully public career person. It, can it be also um, like Elif Botman, who did The Idiot, also mm-hmm. has either or, which I would 100% put in this category of <laughs> the like, you know, it's, it's a woman's perspective, which I think this person specifically was like, I need a dude, but like, I, I don't read about dudes very often. <laughs> I know. That's why it's such a hard question because I'm like, this is not in my wheelhouse. I'm like, so what are. One of my recommendations is also by a woman, which is Fleischman is in trouble. I think that's like totally bro lit. Fleischman is fucking up his life. His life is already fucked up. I don't know. Fleischman is Um, troubles. (laughs) Yeah. Fleischman is troubled. Yeah. So I cheated a little bit there. I don't know if that if it's allowed, but. I mean, I think that, but I do understand this person is looking for the banter. They're looking for the, you know, some, some good stuff, but, but I I get it. It is also hard to find books like that, that are, yeah. Uh, 
I think this is one of the reasons that I hate hated and like rebelled so much against chiclet because I was like, when dudes do it, we just called it fiction for the entire eighties, especially, you know, seventies right, and eighties. Right. Um, and then we were like, Oh, a woman's writing about people wandering around and having relationships or not succeeding in them. Mm, we'll make a whole category for it. And you're like, wow. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think another book that someone suggested, which I had not crossed my mind, but totally fits is less by Andrew oh, Sean Greer. Sure. And of course, Less is Lost, which was like Less is Lost, the new one, uh, the the follow up, yeah. Which you're like, you were like, no one, you know. I was very nervous as someone who loved Less, like a lot of people. I was like, why are you writing more? And then I was like, I'm so glad you did. This is delightful. Oh, really? Because I did not like Less. Oh, you did not like Less? Yeah. Mm -mm. So I think the stakes are higher in this one, and so that there was like more of a plot plot to it, which I think is probably a reasonable critique of Less. yeah, because uh, you know, and this this has he's traveling across America, which is fascinating. Yeah, um, my other two one is the Town of Babylon by Alejandro Varela, um, because oh. that that sort of has like he's going back home for his high school reunion or whatever, and like reencountering. Mm-hmm. So that sort of has that like drama banter sort of. It's sort of funny, and then the other one is not out yet. I think it's out when you all are listening to this next week, it's called Sucker by Daniel Hornsby. And it's oh, sort of that's a presented. Good, that's a good yeah, it's like, I haven't read it, but just the way it was presented to me was like a, a bad blood meets succession kind of thing. Like this like rich, this rich kid of like a, from a rich family starts working at this startup that like wants to suck your blood and like make you immortal or something. I don't know. That's how it was presented. It it kind of intrigued me. And so when I got this question, I was like, oh, there's that book I just heard about. So I don't know how we did, Tanya. I don't know if you're going to be happy with our recs or not. It's a really hard one. Um, but I'll I kind of love Twitter how hard thread. it is. I'm going to be like yeah. texting you for the next two years thinking about yes, this. Being like, I came <laughs> up with one. Um, and for everyone who wants their question read on the podcast, email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com. Okay. This is like probably the first question that everyone want, probably wanted me to ask. But here I am 30 minutes in <laughs> asking you maybe the most obvious question. How do you decide what to stock? in your bookstore? Oh my God. The, the perennial question. Do you want the technical answer or do you want my emotional answer? Or I mean, both probably, which one do you want I first? I think probably both. Why don't you start with the technical, why don't you start with the emotional answer? Okay. Um, I think. Well, the emotional answer is a little bit technical and that like loyalty is a mission-based bookstore. So general bookstores are kind of going for like, their number one thing is like, what's going to sell? And hopefully right. also, is it good? Right? Like it's like, right. you're always trying to balance those few things, no matter what kind of bookstore you are. If you are a mission Turns out what's going to sell, it's not always good. Who knows? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Definitely true. Definitely true. And in some (laughs) cases, like, that's okay because entertainment is wonderful and a value in and of itself. And sometimes you're like, oh, no, it's a garbage fire. Um, Yeah. So if you're a mission-based bookstore, that helps you navigate that a little bit more, too, because you'd be like, oh, I'm not selling American dirt in this store ever. It's not right. happening. This is right. against the very reason my bookstore exists. Exists. The community has told me they feel like hurt by this and the community is what we are here for. And so we are done. Like, boom, end right. of story. A lot of times things are grayer area than that, though. And so for me, it comes down to a like gut reaction. How are my feels? How do my booksellers feel about it? And uh, like, 
<laughs> Marie Kondo, it like, does it bring me joy? Is this mm. something I am proud of? Someone walking in off the street and going, I heard about loyalty or your window display looked interesting or do you have a bathroom? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when they walk past these books on the shelf or see them on the display table or whatever, are they intrigued? And am I proud to tell them this book is something I chose? Um, right. Like, like, sorry, it it matters to me. This store is a ref- like what I think my community is. So, am I proud of that? You know, that's right. the that's the gut, that's the emotion. The technical term is we look at hundreds of thousands of titles in catalogs that are getting bigger and bigger all the time um, as Mm. publishers buy each other up um, and become one giant ball of conglomeration, um, um, which is Ronald Reagan's fault. Um, (laughs) But I do think that it is, um, you know, what stands out as you look through publishing catalogs, which are on, uh, you know, an an online platform called Edelweiss, um, where most publishers uh, post their things occasionally, you know, you get sent a physical catalog too. A lot of like smaller presses and university presses still send physical catalogs, which I find delightful. Um, <laughs> I love getting uh, those. I'm like, Ooh. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, my, my ADHD really appreciates a physical reminder of the thing I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and you know, you have a lot of trust in your book selling and book sales community. If I have a wonderful sales rep who understands the mission of the store, the books they highlight for me in that maybe 20,000 title catalog or 2,000 title catalog, right? Uh, Or, you know, 98 titles I looked at the other day. But the six that my sales rep highlighted for me were so perfect for us. And then there was a couple that I was like, oh, I'll bring this in in like ones and twos and we'll give it a try, right? Like, it is again a relationship-based business. So if someone tells me, "I think this is going to be huge," it might not be perfect for you, but maybe you want one on the shelf. Or I think this is going to be huge, and it is perfect for you. Get a stack for the table, and I'm going to do my best to read it in advance. And if I don't get to read it in advance, at least read part of it and right. have a sense of of what it is. And sometimes the thing they're pushing is god awful. And sometimes it's fine. And sometimes I'm like, "Oh my god, someone is going to love this, but it's not for me." You right. have to have like a really really high level of self-awareness about what your personal taste is versus what your community's taste is. And one of the best things you can do is listen to your booksellers if you're lucky enough to have people on staff, if you're not doing it solo or with only a couple, you know, maybe there's some stores that are like, you know, one person most days and then occasionally a volunteer on the weekends or some, right. you know, high school interns or, you know, and not saying you don't listen to those people, but, um, you know, I, there's people who work at Loyalty who have very different tastes than me and I love to have them tell me what I'm missing. <laughs> yeah. But so, okay. So you, so books are coming out, you know, they're coming. You're like, okay, we're going to order 10 of these, two of these, one of this mm-hmm. because of the sales rep, the books hit the shelf. And then people start coming in the bookstore and they're asking you about a, about a book you don't have. Mm-hmm. Are you then like, okay, we need to go in and order five of these. Cause we keep getting asked about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. And then when you sell out of a book, is it automatically renewed or do you have to go in and be like, we want to order more of these for the shelf? Like, how does the process of actually like 
once you, because you guys are guessing at mm-hmm. the start. Mm-hmm. You're yep. like, this is what we yep. think is good. It is this an is what educated we think is guess. It is taste. Yeah. It is like, is someone willing to write a staff pick for this to pull it out? It is right. It is magic. It is not a science. It's the only thing that was fully true in that PRH Simon Schuster murder hearing. <laughs> like, it is like, no. <laughs> so then once you start to actually have books that have gone on sale, because a lot mm-hmm. of this is being done before the books are ever in the world. Then Six to nine people- months in advance sometimes. Like, you're like, right. totally well, yeah, yeah, totally in advance. So then books start coming out into the world. People start coming and asking you about things. How do you then decide what you want to re-up mm-hmm. versus like, okay, we're going to sell through this and kind of just be done with this? Or yeah. like this one's selling like hotcakes. Is there like an auto rebuy? Or like how does <laughs> that process work? Oh, my God. What a sane system it would be if there was an auto <laughs> rebuy. Um So a fun fact about independent book selling is, again, I've said this a lot, there's no money. This affects things in ways that you might not think about, such as there is no um, point of sale system that is central to every bookstore or is the monopoly in every bookstore. There's a few standouts, um, but part of it is because there's not a lot of money in making tech for independent bookstores. Um, (laughs) Publishers are on a very antiquated ordering system um, that is basically relative to a fax machine um and so to get a computer system an inventory system to talk to the publishing inventory system it's messy so um i use a fabulous uh um, point of sale system called ibid um that is dope and has like all the detail and reporting that i love and it is fairly good at reordering so it you know runs a list of what i've sold I have some minimum set in there on certain titles, um, either because they're staff picks or because they're like our perennial core inventory. And it suggests, you know, does that suggest, and I go through and say, I, or a a supervisor goes through and is like, yes, no, yes, no, yes. And it'll say, you can run it different ways. You can do like suggested ordering. So it might be like, you sold six of this, maybe get eight to 10. Or it could just be like auto, you know, there's another report that's just like you sold two, bring in two. And then I can adjust and I can send those orders off to publishers. They will arrive anywhere in between um, for a variety of reasons. Shipping is still not back to what it was. People have closed warehouses, condensed warehouses, open new warehouses, you know, it's all over the place. But if the publisher's warehouse is in Indiana, that is coming to me in like two weeks. If the publisher's warehouse is in Maryland, obviously that's going to be fast. And this is like... The bookstores who are in your neck of the woods, Tracy, are like rolling their eyes because so much is like East Coast or like in the middle centric um, compared yeah, to no, like I'm you I'm know, aware you're aware yes exactly so like they're like oh two weeks that's nice <laughs> but yeah. which is why some of us also rely very heavily on wholesalers um, who are positioned throughout the country more so and can get us the book faster but we lose even more of our discount on that so you know without getting into you know not allowed to share, you know, actual numbers. Uh, It is definitely like, it's better to order from a publisher, but sometimes you want the book faster because it is a customer request or it's selling really hot now, but it's not going to be in two weeks because people have moved on to a new it book. Right. So you might split the difference and get some from a publisher and some from the wholesaler, or you'll get your special orders uh, that are customer requests from the wholesaler. And then not or or it's a last minute um you know event book edition so you're going to get some of those from a wholesaler um whereas you're you're planning events months in advance you're going to order them from the publisher um so how you restock again not a science but you're you're looking at it and yeah you're trying to figure out you know we are not like the BIPOC queer bookstore is not 
necessarily the target store for um, Prince Harry's memoir, Spare. But like, obviously, people pre-ordered that for me, right? And pre-orders, every author will tell you this a thousand times, and they are 100% correct. If you pre-order a book, I know that then at least two other people are probably going to be asking for it, right? Unless it's like insanely obscure. (laughs) And even then, sometimes, we love an obscure that tells me something, right? Like someone right. went someone went to the trouble to pre-order this, so there's going to be walk-ins too. Um, yeah. Or people who pre-order the night before a book comes out and then walk in on, at opening and they're like, where's my book? And I'm like, you pre-ordered this at midnight yesterday. Right, <laughs> like, right, 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 right. Um, but, you know, all of that is like very helpful that I, I need to up that initial order. Um, mm. And then you watch it and you go like, okay, was this just like the book of the week? Or did it also sell, you know, a lot? Um, and some of it is like chicken or the egg. Like, is this still selling? Cause it's the thing I have stacked up on the table or is this selling because people came people in looking for it? it. Yeah. Right. And it, it's, it's hard. And that is, um, you know, part of it is just like trying to watch your stock really carefully and make sure you're not super stocked up on something that's not moving. Um, yeah. and it, when that happens, you want to decide like, is it not moving because I've got it in a weird place? Cause it needs a staff pick or because genuinely, like its moment is over and we want to keep a couple on the shelf um, right. and keep recommending it, but we don't need a giant stack of it anymore. And yeah, that it, that's like a huge, huge, huge part of the job. And when you take your eye off the ball, it can really, can really mess up the business side of things and also like yeah. make your customers kind of frustrated. Yeah. We've been talking so much. We've literally like almost run out of time to talk about what? your books, but we're going to squeeze some in. Two books you love, one book you hate. Um, two books I love. Um, I, I feel like I should be like harder than this, but I, I'm not, I'm just going to go with my gut, which is, um, yeah, Yossi's homegoing is like still my like golden book. <laughs> it like, uh, it, I'm just like, nothing will ever make me feel. <laughs> I love that. Um, it, 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 it took me, um, love, love, love transit in the kingdom as well. But yeah, that was like the book. Um, and then I recently, reread blood child by octavia butler um Mm. there's a relatively new edition out from seven stories press it's this beautiful hardcover um an indie press that i love um they do incredible like gorgeous books that octavia butler deserves and they did it before Mm. she like became uh, um something that like was mainstream again um and it has an introduction by jasmine ward that is of course fabulous so that's two books that i adore book that i hate Ooh, book that i hate I hate so many books. Oh, me too. Um, <laughs> Thank it's one you. Of the I love about you. I think it's okay to hate books. It's okay to be really, really mad at books. Um, yeah. The first book that I ever threw across the room was 1984. It made mm. me so mad, and I don't think it delivered on its promise. And uh, I will hold to that. Um, I hate Moby Dick with a fiery passion. It's like my biggest tension between me and all of my bookselling friends. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like. Melville needed an editor. Um, this is too long, and his best work is his short stories. Um, <laughs> so there's there's two. I, I love it. What about what are you reading right now? Oh, what I'm reading right now, I'm I'm in like a rereading phase actually, um, and I am um, rereading Thick um, oh, by so Tracy Cotton McMillan. Yeah, I am like just like essays or essays and short stories are really where my brain's at right now. Um, it's either mm-hmm. that or just like massively long epic fantasy. There's like okay. nothing in between. So I'm loving that. And um, uh, I'm also making my way through rereading Beverly Jenkins 
um, series that takes place like in the West. Um, so it is like black cowboys. And I was like, didn't know about black cowboys. Didn't know that was an option that we had. Um, so very <laughs> into that. Um, it takes place, I should say old West, like, like just before reconstruction. So it's like really okay. fascinating American history slash sexy times slash black cowboys and cowgirls. Um, I love it. Big fan. You are inundated with books. You're mm-hmm. currently walking through the bookstore looking around as you're I'm, answering my questions, which I'm obsessed with um, for people who can't see this. Only I can see this. I, but I, I how, don't know how to hold still. It's a thing. It's okay. It's okay. How do you decide what to read next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. it's a combination of like, do am I hosting an event for this book? Um, which okay. is a common reason that something will move up my TBR or again, obviously like recommendation from a customer or a friend uh, or another bookseller. All of those definitely play into a part and like what the towering stack by my bedside and on the floor and next to my couch, <laughs> what gets moved to the top. But generally I am a multi-reader. Like I need to read multiple things at once. So I tend okay. to pick like, across a couple different genres of fiction and at least one nonfiction at a time. Okay. And then it then it's mood reading because I spent so long in academia forcing myself to read things that I do not do that. <laughs> I yeah. read according to taste and vibe and mood and it's very healing. <laughs> What's the last really good book someone recommended to you? Oh God, that's a great question. Um, the last really great book someone recommended to me um, that I just had not, like, did was not on my radar. And then this is actually a perfect book selling example. Um, and, you know, not necessarily going to be a surprise when I tell you The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. Mm. Like, that was a book that, like, we did not have, you know, on pre-order and then, like, is pretty much always on the bestseller list at our store now. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. Ugh, so good. Are there things that you wish were different about your reading life? Yes. I think I wish that um, I was a less moody reader. Mm. I wish, uh, (laughs) and like, I'm pretty good at recognizing it now of being like, it's not that that book's bad, it's that I was not in the mood. Like, I've definitely come a long way in my relationship with myself about it. But yeah, I'm a very, very moody reader. Do you have an ideal reading setup? Yes. Um, uh, I, uh, either on my floor, um, surrounded by a lot of pillows, or I do have like a big yellow armchair that I love to be in, um, usually curled up with a blanket, uh, my dog nearby and two to five beverages. options. (laughs) Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm a multi-beverage person myself. I'm like, I need the hot beverage. I need the cold beverage. I need a bubbly beverage. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I have a question on here that I'm not going to ask you because oh. it's it's what's your favorite bookstore, but I'm just going to plug loyalty again. <laughs> I feel like you've sort of, I feel like sort of feels like that's got to be the pick. Oh um, what's the last book you purchased? The last book I purchased was Dreaming in Europe by Audre Lorde, which is like an essay collection of uh, of like like her essays and speeches and writing she did while um, lecturing in Germany and elsewhere in Europe. Um, And it's Mm. awesome and thought provoking and hella readable. And I bought it at Lost City, which is here in DC and um, a used new bookstore run by my friend Adam. 
Love that. Okay. This is our speed round. And then I got to get you out of here because I've gone over your time. Sorry. Um, last book that made you laugh. That, I mean, Samantha Irby's latest. Oh, so good. I just finished this, <laughs> that this week. Thanks. Last book that made you cry. Uh, I'm reading a book that I cannot remember the author of, and I will message it to you, but it's called Belonging. And it's like black people belonging in uh, actually Europe again. Um, and I was reading it in prep for some travel. And there was just some really beautiful passages and conversation about what it is to belong in a place that you maybe don't originally feel so welcome in. Last book were that made you angry? The last book that made me angry was actually, I think, it, it's a book I've been meaning to read forever, and it's called Chokehold, and it's about oh, yeah. policing black men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last book that you felt like you learned a lot? Oh, uh, that was definitely the dreaming in, in Europe, reading that. I learned, I was just like, it was some books your mind are just like, you're, you're connecting. I, I feel all the parts of my brain connecting and, mm. and really like growing and, you know, you're making those neuropathways be traveled, honey. <laughs> what about a book you feel proud to have read? Oh, um, a book I feel proud to have read is called Our Red Book. Um, and it's first person accounts um, uh, about uh, reproductive justice access um, from women all over the country from all sorts of different walks of life, different abilities. Yeah, it was really, really incredible. And I'm just like proud to have read it because I get like a little like, I don't love a body horror. <laughs> I get really stressed thinking about access to care because it's so important to me and my community. But um, yeah, these were people from all over the spectrum of life talking about it. And it was just a really beautiful edited book. What about a book that you still cannot believe you have not read? Oh, so many. I know. <laughs> um, so many. Um, you know, I would say a book that has been looking at me for years on my shelf is Tar Baby by Toni Morrison. Mm. Like it like it like looks at me in the morning and is like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> you ready? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no, I'm not, Tony. I'm not. Okay. Not today. If you could assign a book to high school students, what would you pick? Um, oof. Can I pick two? No, I have to pick one. Sure. You can uh, pick two. I don't care. Um, I think uh, students should have to read The Once of Future King by T.H. White because it talks about like what you want from a society in a really like entertaining way because King Arthur is entertaining. Um, and then I wish we could assign them We Do This Till We th- uh, Free Us by Miriam Kaba, mm. which like just like is both imaginative and takes really seriously the ideas behind abolition and what dreaming can really mean. Love, 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 love. I guess this is actually I've last two, last two. One okay. is who would you want to write the book of your life? How have I never thought of this before? People answer these questions on your show and I'm like, I've got an answer for that. And now I'm being asked I and I cannot answer. I these rarely questions. ask, I rarely ask this question because writers always are like, I'm gonna write my memoir. And I'm like, okay, that's not the fucking question. That Karen. was not the question, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I want to say Samantha Irby because I think she would make it really funny, but also because yeah. <laughs> I think my life is really funny. And a lot of times I have that like trauma kid thing where you tell a story that you think is hilarious and then you look over and people are like, oh, no. <laughs> no. So I think she would do a good job. I really do. I think she would. I think we share a sense of humor. 
I love that. I would I would read it for sure. Um, okay, last one. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would you want it to be? You all can't see it, but I just gave her a look. A serious look. I feel like I'm getting sent to the principal's office. Uh, yes, you are absolutely getting sent to the principal's office. You know what? There is a book. Yes, Maud Newton. I just literally was like, who is this by? This is not necessarily, but off the top of my head, it's a book called Ancestor Trouble. And mm. it takes seriously um and with personal stories but also with larger conversation about what generational racism if you are a white person in america means Mm. what what did what did your daddy do what did your grandpa do and how is that affecting the people around you right now Mm. um i love it i think it's really beautifully written and i think it's a way of approaching the topic that we don't see enough responsibility from we put it on us and as Toni Morrison said, this is not my problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is your problem. This so is a you think this is a you thing, and uh, yeah, I, I think that would be a really excellent read. Oh my gosh, I love it. You're so good. I I wish I could ask you all the questions because I know that you have answers for all of them, but. This has been a conversation with Hannah Oliver Depp, owner creator of the Loyalty Bookstores in the DC area, and Hannah will be back. At the end of this month, let me pull up the date so I can get a nice clean out for that. Yes. Um, Oh, I should also say since February this year, Christine Ballo is co-owner of Loyalty with me. So very excited about having having a person in my my corner who loves the mission as much. You would know Christine because she did Best Books of 2020 with us. So if you listen to that episode, that's Christine. Yes. Um, She also does events at Loyalty, which is (laughs) Loyalty has the best events. But (laughs) She's amazing. Uh, Hannah will be back on Wednesday, June 28th for our episode on Oreo by Fran Ross. I'm so excited. I've never read the book. You suggested it. It's a brilliant suggestion. I I just cannot even wait. 1970s satire. I don't know anything about it. So I'm really, really excited. It is Uh, a fave. You're going to love it. Or hate it, maybe. And then we can talk about that, too. It's going to be great. Oh, I hope. I hope I hate it. Then we can talk about it. Um, You all can go order some books from Loyalty. I'm leaving you links to everything in the show notes. So if something that Hannah talked about today sparked your fancy, order it from Loyalty. And it might take two weeks, okay? Just chill out, people. It'll be be fine. fine. Books don't expire. It's going to be fine. And you have too many books on your shelf anyways. So it's fine. (laughs) You know, I get it. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for letting me ramble on for so long, Tracy. I loved it a dream and everyone else we will see you in the stacks all right y'all that does it for us today thank you so much for listening and thank you again to hana for being my guest hana will be back on june 28th for our book club discussion of oreo by fran ross if you love the show and want inside access to it head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and TikTok and The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 